if you say you're a bad kid, that assigns a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And so when you label those foods that way, it's just creating this lifetime of guilt and shame around food. All right. Well, today I have a great guest for you, Carly Jurek. So most days you can find her in workout clothes. I can definitely appreciate that as someone who is wearing workout clothes as we speak, sweats and a Nike t-shirt. And that's pretty much my daily attire 99% of the time. Uh, <laughs> definitely appropriate for a mom chasing her two rambunctious boys around. She's mostly known for her love of nutrition, good food, her obsession with dogs, and her addiction to baking, all things I absolutely love myself. She's most passionate about feeding her family delicious, nutritious foods and debunking diet culture propaganda with simple evidence-based recommendations. She works with moms who are struggling with distinguishing a fad diet versus sound nutrition for their families. And in her work, she helps them to generate a tailored approach to feeding their specific families that minimizes stress and is appropriate for their schedule. I think this is going to be a great discussion uh, you know, as I target men with my work, uh, before we get started, one thing that I, I really want to emphasize is that the job of feeding children of any age is just as much for men as it is for women. Yes, I am yes. talking to you dads, and we have a very powerful role to play, and our involvement can really have a profound impact on the kind of relationship with food that our kids ultimately develop. And it's interesting because I would even say to a degree, we even have a role to play, even if you're uh, if mom is breastfeeding, not exactly the same one, but we still have, I think, some important things that we can contribute to the to that process. And so I think it all starts early. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is all kinds of stuff related to feeding our kids. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and dive in. Hey, Carly. Hi, thanks for having me. And I like feel like I couldn't nod my head. Yes, enough. As you were saying that, because you're right, like dads do play such a huge role in it. And I think it's definitely something where if there are two parents, like both need to be involved, both mm -hmm. need to be on the same page with how you approach feeding your kids. So all of the nods to that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. Well, why don't you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, uh, maybe a bit more about your work and, and what brought you to this place where you are today with your uh, particular approach? Yes, absolutely. So I am a dietitian and a mom of two little boys. And I have over seven years of experience as a dietitian. Um, my first role, I worked as a supermarket dietitian, which was so unique and so much fun um, and just really got to learn a lot about even just the process of getting food to um, to people um, that I think is just like really valuable. And then I worked for almost three years in corporate wellness. Um, and then I became a mom and I realized that my calling was to be more present for my, for my boys and be home more. So um, I launched my own business. It's something that I've kind of always dreamed of doing. And so I started that when I had my second son. Uh, as far as my journey, I am really, really passionate about intuitive eating. And so that's why I was so excited when we connected to um, just be able to have that conversation, but also carry that conversation over to men. Cause I think that is um, not always talked about that men can struggle with their eating and with body image just as much as women can. So I love um, that you're bringing that awareness to men, but I had my own journey of um, disordered eating. I think that's ultimately what pushed me down the path of even becoming a dietitian. Um, I was just really interested in food to the point where I would probably categorize it as orthorexia, just like this obsession with being healthy and eating the right kinds of food. Um, and at one point, probably when I was at my like darkest point with my disordered eating, um, a very short list of foods that were okay for me to eat. Um, and if I ate anything outside of that, um, it was just like, insanely mentally debilitating like I would cry I would feel like I needed to go exercise like it was just not a great place to be in and I will never forget I had a preceptor when I was doing my internship um just mention like intuitive eating and how it she's noticed it really helps when she counsels her patients and at the time I was just in the point where I was trying to learn as much as I could so I ordered the book that day I think I read it that night as I was just reading it it was just one of those moments where I was like this makes sense this makes so much more sense. Um, and so it just sparked me on my own journey. Um, 
that had lots of bumps and lots of growth, but I feel like I've kind of come out of it in a much better place um, with food where I'm able to enjoy food, keep myself fed. I was a chronic under eater, chronic over exerciser. So just able to approach both food and exercise in such a positive way. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a great, uh, great <laughs> story there of how you, how you move through that. And I think that's so common with, with a lot of us. I mean, I think different people come into it with different levels of disordered eating or problematic eating, whatever, however you want to you know, refer to it. But I think a lot of us can definitely relate to, to what you were talking about there with the, the clean eating thing and uh, putting yes. foods in categories, good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, uh, all of that, all of that kind of stuff that uh, is, is so problematic for so many people. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, about men struggling with these things too, because as I shifted my focus from just whoever wanted to work with me to now mm -hmm. basically just men, it, it's interesting because while they have, they, they manifest differently, the problems are really the same things. So yes. body image, we still all have, I see just as many body image issues as men as women, they just manifest differently. And I see just as many problematic eating patterns. They just manifest a little bit differently. And there's different driving forces in there. Yes. And I think the messaging is so different for men, but it does create that same insecurity around the body and mm -hmm. wanting, feeling the need to manipulate the body, whether it's putting on muscle, whether it's losing weight. Um, it's just, it's so interesting to see how there's different messaging towards like men versus women, but it all ultimately results in the same like body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, th I think that that's a, that's a good place to start our conversation specifically about yeah. kids. Cause that was one of the things that I thought would be great to talk with you about. I've, I've kind of mentioned it in the past on the podcast, but it's always good to bring on an expert to talk about that too in, in that area and someone who, who really focuses their work and you know, with uh, with kids and and then also with parents and that kind of a thing because I do work with parents and their kids to a degree but it's always mm -hmm. great to hear different insights from different people as well so yeah you know the approach to nutrition that most kids are exposed to really is kind of what you were talking about there you know around nutrients and good and bad foods and healthy and health unhealthy and what you should avoid you know avoid sugar uh, even kids coming home. You know, my nephew, and I know you know who my nephew is. <laughs> my nephew, uh, I remember my sister-in-law talking about him uh, coming home from school and and referring to certain foods as mm -hmm. you know, being healthy, unhealthy, and, and uh, you know, the my plate thing and all of that stuff. But what, what issues do you see with this approach where we're teaching kids about food? Because it's, I mean, some people would say, well, they need to learn, but where, where are the problems with that? Exactly. And I think that's a really good place to start. And I think what it's teaching ultimately at a, such a young age, especially with little kids, like they're so black and white, like they hear good, they hear bad, like they just understand like I am good or they I am bad. They don't understand like the in between. So when you start labeling foods like that, you're creating some kind of shame or guilt connected to that food. So it's kind of the same with behavior when you label them good or bad, like if you say you're a bad kid, that assigns a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And so when you label those foods that way, it's just creating this lifetime of guilt and shame around food that is evolutionarily like going to go against children because children are designed to crave sweet foods like formula, breast milk, all of those are sweeter because that's what babies naturally tend to go to. It's an internal safety mechanism. If things taste bitter, they associate that with poison or things that are going to hurt them. So they're naturally inclined to want sweeter foods. So if you start labeling, you know, sweets, candy, sugar as bad, you're first off go, like going against what they intrinsically are craving because that's what they want. But then you're also assigning a lot of guilt and shame that I think the kids are not quite at the age to where they can understand and process that. And so it's just going to be something that they carry on as they get older and older, those food labels. Um, and they'll just feel bad about themselves. And that's where you'll probably start seeing like binging tendencies or yo-yo dieting. It just creates this really negative, approach to food at a very young age. 
Yeah, I think that's that's so important to to understand that. And I'm I'm sure that the the moms you work with, because uh, I I've seen this with the women I worked with and with the with the men that I work with, that so many of the issues they're struggling with as adults can be traced back to kids. It's almost you know some people think of that as like this. Wow, you uncovered all this great stuff, and it's like yeah, it's so it's so prominent, so prevalent that it's almost without exception. I hear a, a struggle that somebody has, and I can almost immediately go back and point to it. Probably happened with something in your your childhood. Did this happen by any chance? Yes. And they're like, "Wow, yeah, how did you know that?" Well, it's it's so common. Absolutely, yeah, it is. And a lot of times when I work with parents who are having feeding issues with their kids, a lot of it stems from behaviors that the the parents have or biases or preconceived like notions or food rules. Um, it can vary person and family to family, but a lot of it stems from the parent and what maybe their insecurities are or what their food rules are and it's manifesting in the kid. Are they pushing that on the kid and it's creating a lot of struggles with feeding the kids? That is so common. I feel like sometimes a lot of my work is being a therapist to the parents and helping them uncover a lot of their issues that are now coming out in their children. Yeah, that's that's so true. I mean, most most of what we do really with with our clients is much more like counseling rather than like <laughs> yes. you know, people think they go to a nutritionist or a dietitian or something and that they're going to get this eating plan and you're going to tell me exactly what to eat, what not to eat and how how often to eat. And it's like, no, we're going to actually talk about your childhood eating. You know, how did you yeah. learn this? Why, why are you eating this way? Um, you know, what, yeah. what, uh, you know, I don't, I want to know what your day looks like, not because I want to point out all the bad foods you've eaten, but because I want to understand how you're living your life so I can help you navigate that in a way that is going to allow you to feed yourself well and, and that kind of a thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm laughing because I feel like of all of my sessions that I've worked with clients this week, I think like 90% of the time was just like talking about like mental health or like emotion. And like 10% of it was actually talking about nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. That's how that's, that, that seems to be the case with me too. Every once in a while they come up and say, Oh, I had a question about fish oil or something. And it's, it's like, but that's not even remotely uh, close to what it is. That the bulk of the conversation was focused on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and I know you're, as you said, you're a big proponent of, uh, of intuitive eating and then, which would mean that developing intuitive eaters also and in adults as well as kids. And I, I have spoken on the podcast a number of times about the principles of intuitive eating, since it's an intuitive eating podcast, that would mm -hmm. absolutely make sense. <laughs> um, how can we work to develop these qualities in our kids? So kind of um, going from talking about the the general overview this this concept of not demonizing foods what are what's kind of a specific way that we can approach this yes so i think um i coach when i'm working with my clients with their kiddos um there's this concept or these principles called the division of responsibility and so i think those are they're two separate concepts but i think they go hand in hand and really help support each other um, but really, honestly, and for me as a mom, this is so true with my kids. My goal is to always support my kids because when you're born, you are an intuitive eater. When you're a baby, you know how to eat when you're hungry and how to stop when you're full. Baby cries, baby gets food, baby falls asleep when they're full. So like they already have that nature. And so my goal was always to just support that as my boys got older and to help as much as I can limit that messaging around food and just keep it a very positive mm -hmm. um, thing in their life. And so with that is the division of responsibility. And I think it just helps support their ability to self-regulate and to grow into intuitive eaters. And so it's a concept that is written by a separate dietitian. It's something, there's an entire institute around it, lots of studies, lots of, um, like efficacy around it. But what it does is it breaks down the role of the parent and then it breaks down the role of the child. Um, and as long as you're staying in what your role is, feeding issues are minimized. I won't say they're gone because mm -hmm. feeding a kid 
even when you're like have the best eater, sometimes it can feel like you're going to battle. Mm-hmm. That's not ever going to go away. But as long as you're sticking to each other's roles and allowing each other to do what they're responsible for, a lot of it is going to be vastly minimized and it's going to lower stress around food for both you and for your kid. Yeah, that makes sense. And and for those listening, if you haven't uh, listened to me talk before, the dietitian she's talking about is Ellen Satter. And so uh, you can, I'll put some info to link to her work in the show notes as well, just so you yes. you know who the 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 OG of uh, child nutrition <laughs> is who we're talking about here. But yeah, it's a great yes. model. And 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 like you like you pointed out, it's not exactly intuitive eating because it it does incorporate some other. Uh, things in there that um, that wouldn't be intuitive eating proper, but it definitely sets kids up to then transition into that kind of uh, that model uh, as they get older, I think. And so, well, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the the division of responsibility is. What um, what are the the key kind of principles of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's breaking it up into each other, like each person's role. So, mm-hmm. the role of the parent. Your role as a parent is to purchase the food, plan the food. So go to the grocery store, have food in the pantry, plan out meals, cook meals, provide food for your children. And then to provide a a structure around those mealtimes so that it's predictable for your kid. So your kid knows they're going to wake up, they're going to have breakfast, they'll have a snack a couple hours later, then they'll have lunch. Um, It doesn't need to be rigid. It doesn't need to be like, oh, it's. 1256, like it's lunchtime, there's flexibility within that, but providing some kind of predictability around the schedule. And then creating a positive eating environment. I think that's the one that people sometimes miss, especially when I'm working with my clients of mealtime needs to be positive. So no pressure to eat, no like, hey, you need to eat your food. Why haven't you touched your plate? Like no micromanaging, helicoptering over them turn off all the distractions, don't eat in front of the TV, um, don't sit there and you'll be having an argument with your spouse or an argument with another kid, like just creating a positive eating environment when you're sitting down and eating with your kid. So those are the roles of the parent. The role of the child is to determine how much they eat. So that could be not touching anything, refusing to eat food. That could be asking for four, um, four servings of something. That's all within their role and they get to decide how much. So no cutting them off and saying, hey, you've already had more than you should. Like you don't get any more um, letting them have as much as they're asking for. And then the second role for the kid is to grow in a predictable manner. That one I think is kind of hard, especially with some of the parents I work for is accepting that there's kids that might be bigger. Um, I know I've talked to a lot of parents who just get really caught up in the growth curve and understanding that as long as your kid is following the consistent growth curve and they're following what is natural for their body, letting them do that. The more you try to manipulate it, the more you're going to see feeding issues with your kids. So accepting that sometimes they're smaller kids and they're going to be on the smaller side of the growth curve. Sometimes there's going to be bigger kids and Mm -hmm. all of that is okay. And all of that is normal. It's not something that we need to try to manipulate. So those are the like details of the division of responsibility. And if it's something that you wanted to practice, like those are the roles and the things to focus on, but there's always nuances to it. There's always things that come up, but in like a really long elevator speech, (laughs) that is the division of responsibility. Yeah, that was a great explanation of it. And and that's definitely something where if if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. Uh, I'd like to learn more about it. There are certainly books that can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Ellen Satter has written several on the topic. But working with yes, someone like has. Carly can be extremely helpful because the books provide the information. But someone who is an expert and, in doing this and in finding problematic areas and identifying areas where maybe you you think you're not applying pressure, but in fact, you really are. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone like Carly can be extremely helpful to help you navigate that. Just like when, you know, if, if you're getting intuitive eating coaching or really any kind of coaching, you know, you're, you're a basketball player and you think you've got your shooting down well because you're, you're pretty good at it. But then your coach watches from the outside and says, hey, you're doing this. Did you really, you didn't, and you didn't even realize you were doing that. And so then 
identify these problem areas that can change and and uh, and that can be extremely helpful. So definitely, if this is if this is an area where you're really struggling, um, definitely don't hesitate to reach out for help. So um, yeah. So with the with the the division of responsibility. So when you talk about pressure, what are some of the the main things that parents tend to pressure their kids on? So what what are the like kind of the big areas? Maybe some of the really obvious ones that that uh, low hanging fruit where parents could immediately start after they listen to this podcast say, you know what, I could probably cut back on that. Yes, that one. Oh man, I've heard the whole gambit of things. Um, probably where I see a lot of pressure is pressure to try foods, especially if you're dealing mm-hmm. with picky eating. Like that's really frustrating, and especially if you spend a lot of time cooking and you put the plate down and your kid refuses to eat. Um, and understanding that the more you pressure your kid to eat whatever food you are deeming they need to eat at that moment, honestly, the more they're going to fight you and the more they're going to refuse to eat. So as far as pressure, I think a lot of it is just around eating like vegetables. So eating more vegetables. So common, I'll talk to parents who it's like, my kid won't even touch vegetables. And it's like, okay, well, do they eat fruit? Oh, they love fruit. Okay, great. Like that's a good place to start because fruit is sweet. Mm-hmm. Kids like sweet. Veggies tend to be more bitter. So they're not always going to immediately jump to vegetables. Um, and then also helping them understand just how to introduce those foods um, and how frequently a lot of times parents don't understand. Like you have to introduce the food 10 or 15 times before the kid will even accept mm-hmm. it. Um So a lot of it is pressure to eat food and then pressure to avoid or to limit other foods. So um, candy, like around holidays, lots of pressure to only eat one or you can't eat this many, um, only have one cookie, lots of pressure and messaging around that. Um, And really, they're well-intentioned. They think they're doing what's best for their kids, but really what it's creating is a food obsession of whatever food they're either trying to encourage them to eat less of or a food that they want them to eat more of more of it's creating um a, like an association between that food of oh they want me to eat this food this food must not be very good or mm-hmm. they don't want me to eat this food so it must be really good so just being neutral with food as best you can and because there's pressure no matter what they're always going to pressure either way yeah, I love that that term to describe it, that neutrality with the food to where they they see they put them on on an even playing field so that they they don't end up obsessing about a particular kind of food. And and that restriction, yes. too, when you don't allow them to enjoy that food, except on very rare or special occasions, it's like with anything you tend to go uh, you know, when you get the chance then you tend to say, well, I'm going to take advantage of this. And we, mm-hmm. I mean, we see it with dieting on, quote, cheat day and, you know, those kinds of things where, where we're like, oh, I'm going to take advantage of this and get it out of my system and yes. knowing that I won't it's be almost able to like, have it. Yeah, it's almost like creating that last supper mentality mm-hmm. with your kiddos of, yeah. I have no idea when I'm going to get this again. So I'm going to eat as much as I possibly can because I want it, right? As I want a lot of it, but I don't know when I'll get it again. Yeah. Well, and that pressure too on on how much to eat and that kind of thing, whether it's more or less, then that that disconnects them from that uh, from their those internal cues that help them to mm-hmm. regulate how much they're going to eat and how much they need. Absolutely. Well, and one thing I hear a lot of um, with parents is they're really concerned because, like, oh, my kid is obsessed with carbs. They only eat bread. They only eat these foods. Um, and a lot of what I do is I help them, uh, like help parents understand, like just the mere body size of small children, like they require carbohydrates because they burn through energy so quickly, their body needs that quick burning energy. So they're naturally going to do that because that's what their body needs. It's not because there's an issue or because they're uncontrollable. It's just literally what they need to go run and play and chase their friends and just be a small child. Um, so that's, I hear so many like different things. And I think it depends from family to family, but I feel like there's always like a specific food that there's like pressure to eat more or less, or there's some kind of issue with that food within the family. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've seen that a lot too. Well, you see it, you see it again with adults, bringing back to adults too, is that it's yeah. funny because all, they, they tend to have the same issues and they just become an adult and, and still have the same issue. But now they don't have a parent, they're trying to control it, but they're still almost like parenting themselves in a way, control, trying to control yes. it, those food police voices in their head and all of those kinds of things. Well, and I think too, they're insecure about mm-hmm they feel uncontrollable around that food and they're insecure about it. And so when they see that behavior in their kids, I think it's, there's a saying, and I'm going to butcher this, but like what you're most insecure about is always going to come out in your children. And it's just going to make you like, it's going to heighten that way more. And so I think like we've talked about several times, like a lot of when I have kids dealing with feeding issues a lot of it is identifying it in the parents too and helping the parents come to terms with that and helping them on that journey without being super in their face and being like, hey, a lot of this is your own personal issue that's now coming out in your child. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important because, um, you know, if the parents aren't on board and, and, and I think that that's really why teaching kids about nutrition is so problematic and why it's not particularly helpful and why it can be extremely problematic because you're getting these messages from, in many cases, chronic dieters who are struggling with their relationship with food, you know, teacher at school mm-hmm. or, or some other kind of educational environment. And, it, and it's not, uh, you know, it's kind of coming at it from this broad sort of public view of, of this topic. And, um, and yeah, you, you know, we can't, we can't really help kids if we're not helping the the parents also with that. And I mean, I think yes, it's important absolutely. that we that we emphasize here that most parents are doing the best that they can and they're doing what they believe to be the right thing. It's yes. not that, yes. that you're a bad parent if you're doing this other thing. I mean, you just often you don't know or you're just doing what you were taught and and it's coming from a genuine place of love and concern and care and and a desire for the best for your kids. But sometimes absolutely can be misguided a little bit. Yeah. And I think you nailed it is so many of the parents I work with. It's not that they don't care. It's they mm-hmm. genuinely care and that they're so passionate about doing the best for their kids. But they're essentially doing what they've been taught. Like mm-hmm. they're reiterating. I mean, we've been harassed with this messaging for so long that, you know, America's waistline is expanding and obesity rate is through the roof and all of this messaging. So I think it's something that all of us probably have some kind of anxiety around. And so the messaging has been so negative and we need to get this in control. And so I think as a parent, you're always afraid of raising like the next generation that will you know continue that trend. And so, yes, exactly what you said. They're just trying to do the best that they can for their kids without realizing like what is actually happening with that behavior um, and trying to control that versus just teaching your kid how to self-regulate is really the best way I know how to phrase that is, you know, teaching them how to eat when they're hungry and how to stop when they're full and how to navigate what that looks like in real life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's so important. Well, you, um, you kind of mentioned a little bit there about body size and I, I know we didn't really have this on my list of topics, but you mentioned it earlier, the growth chart. What yes. This is something that comes up a lot where parents are concerned about their child's body size, whether it's too small or too big. And so what? when is it that a parent should be genuinely concerned and kind of like, okay, we, we need to figure out what's going on here. There's, there's a problem versus just, hey, let's just, let, let's just kind of ride this out and take a step back, let's relax, let's let their body grow in the way that it's naturally going to grow. How do we know when there's a problem? Yeah, and that's a really great question that I think has a complex answer. Um, First, I would say, as long as they're staying consistent on their growth curve, so concerns would be like significant drops, significant increases, like if the growth chart is going like up and down, that's probably something to be concerned about. But if it's something where it's like a trend, like I'll use my oldest son as an example. He has always been like 98th percentile, like always just been a bigger kid. That is his body size. That is where he's been on his growth chart. He's active. He eats consistently. He eats well. That's his body size. So 
it's not really something that's ever come up with the provider. So I think as long as there's not huge changes in that growth chart, just let it be. The next thing I would say is um, if it's something where they maybe are over the 100th percentile. And that I say that like very cautiously because the growth chart is all average. It's statistic Mm -hmm. trying to create a curve. So like, it's not going to be a perfect science. There are going to be times when their kids are over on the growth chart. And I think I would look at the bigger picture of are the parents, like what body size are the parents? Are they maybe a little bit bigger? Okay. Genetics might be playing a huge role here. Is the kid active? Is he you know, physically doing things? Is he doing sports? Does he play on the playground? Or is he maybe not doing all of those things? And I would look at the broader picture and I would talk to the parent, like, what does feeding look like? What foods is he eating? And then from there, I would make determinations on what would be best. But I think it's hard to just look at the growth curve and be like, oh, he's over, we should be concerned. I would also really encourage you to find a provider who is willing to have that conversation with you away from your kids. I've talked to so many parents who have kids that have always been higher on the growth chart and the doctor will come in and just start talking about it right in front of like a five-year-old little girl. And it just like mm, grinds my gears because it's just creating this body dysmorphia at such a young age. So being confident in with your provider and even saying like, hey, if you have issues, ask me to step outside. Don't say that in front of my child. But having a provider that's supportive of that versus one that's going to tell you like, oh, your three-year-old needs to lose weight because A, that's not helpful, but then it's also can be very damaging for the child. Yeah. Well, and especially too, a lot of providers, and I hear these stories all the time too, will tell mom or dad something and then they'll turn to the kid and start talking to a seven or eight or nine-year-old kid about how they need to not eat so much and they need to exercise Mm -hmm. more. And they're basically giving them this eat less, move more lecture. And the kid doesn't have any concept of of what that means. And it may be true that they are eating too much. It may be true that they do need to try and be more active, but the way that it's presented in that sort of um, like you know, finger pointing kind of a way is just completely unproductive and extremely harmful, really. Uh, yes, exactly. I and I talk from... about it all the time, how they, they remember back to when they were seven or eight years old yes. and having that conversation with a doctor and they're like in their sixties now, and they still remember the conversation. Yes. And it creates like such a cycle of avoiding medical providers. And I'm a, like, my family is all medical providers. So it's something that like, I'm very passionate about of helping even when I have conversations with them and they, they are talking to their patients of like, don't be that person that just shakes your finger in their face and makes and shames them and makes them feel bad because what's going to happen is they're just never going to come back to the doctor mm-hmm. where if you can create a safe space to have a conversation, look at the bigger picture, look at, you know, are they exercising? Are they eating right? Like what are they actually doing um, and have that conversation with them versus just looking at, a specific number and like, oh, you are non-compliant, you aren't following, like, shame on you, get out of my office kind of mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we've seen in the research and Ellen Satter talks about this and we well, talk about, we see the same stuff in adults also, but the trying to control their, their size, their body size by manipulating their diet with, it, mm-hmm. with that intent uh, has the opposite effect most of the time. You know, you think that micromanaging, it's going to help them better manage their weight when in reality, that micromanagement actually results in them tending to grow in an unpredictable way, less, less normal for that, for that child, whether it's too big again, or too small. I think, I think we often focus on too big over, over too small, but the same thing can happen there. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what are, um. I guess getting back to some of the food things, I just I, I thought that body size one was a somewhere to go. Yeah, with the conversation because it is it's. I mean, we as adults we get really hung up on that too with our own body size and and it's really yes, I absolutely think some of the same kinds of issues. You know, we're told your weight should be at this certain BMI range, and it's kind of the same thing with a with a kid where um, you know you you tell them you should be in this percentile. I think every parent wants their kid in the fiftieth percentile. It's like that's mm-hmm. ideal. 
right? And it's like, no, that's not yeah. ideal. That's 50% of the kids are smaller and 50% are bigger. That's all that tells you. And yeah, so, it's um, just an average. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, you're exactly right. People just get really caught up in that. And I find it kind of interesting because I feel like when you have a newborn, you're obsessed about them gaining weight. Like you want them gaining weight. If they're not mm -hmm. gaining weight, like you're really upset about it. But then I feel like there's just this weird age where like it transitions to where it's like, oh no, now you've gained too much weight. Like now we need to slow it down. And I find it so interesting because it's like for so long we were obsessed with them putting on weight. And then now we're obsessed with them not putting on weight. And I think it's just like conflicting messaging for not only the kid, but also the parents. It's like a weird turn to go from obsessing about one thing to obsessing about the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, coming kind of coming back to some of the food things here. Um, one that you mentioned earlier was kind of with maybe new foods or foods that they are like vegetables, as an example, trying to help. How do we help our kids learn to like different kinds of foods or to at least incorporate them to some degree? I mean, I don't think any kid's ever going to prefer broccoli over <laughs> candy, but you know, there are times when I would rather have broccoli or a salad than I would ice cream. It just doesn't, you know, the ice cream doesn't sound good for the way mm -hmm. my mood is at yes. the time. How do we get kids to end up being kind of in a place where they can naturally navigate that stuff in a way that, I mean, honestly, it's, it's unhealthy to eat ice cream all the time, but it's probably mm -hmm. equally unhealthy to just eat broccoli all the time. So how do we help them to get to that place? And I guess in particular with new foods or, or help with when we're not doing that, you have to eat one bite or you have to eat this before you right. get your dessert or that kind of pressure. So I have a couple tips. Um, I'll try to keep this brief. I think first off is modeling the behavior. So modeling how you want your kid to eat. So you want your kid to eat broccoli. Mm -hmm. You should be eating your broccoli. Do you want your kid to eat ice cream and not eat 10 servings? Like then you should probably do the same. So I think a lot of it just comes down to modeling the behavior of eating balance and exactly what you said and really, honestly, applying those intuitive eating principles. So practicing it yourself and teaching them how to eat in a sustainable way. Next, if you're struggling with a kid that is maybe a little, which all kids are, but like on the pickier side, first off, knowing that kids are what we like to, what is called neophobic. So they're literally afraid of new things. Mm -hmm. So lowering the expectation that if I've never given my kid Brussels sprouts, they're probably not going to try it the first time I give them Brussels sprouts. So lowering that expectation and understanding that most studies, when you look at kids and accepting a food, acceptance of food, it takes 10 to 15 exposures to that food before the kid will even try it. Okay. So I always say that you're in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. It's that constant exposure to food. So how we like to do it in our family is I cook what my husband and I want to eat. I tailor it some to my boys or I make accommodations to my boys that I know things my boys will eat. But ultimately, I'm preparing what I want to eat and I'm exposing them to the food that I like to eat. So with that, I like to say I use this formula when I'm introducing these foods to my boys. Say you're going to put three different types of foods on the plate. I do two familiar foods. Foods that I know my boys have seen consistently. They know what it is. It's nothing scary or intimidating. They know what it is. I always have two of those on the plate. And then I have one new food on the plate. So examples, my boys are obsessed with rice. They absolutely love rice. They love fruit. So I like to do a baked salmon with some rice and some steamed veggies on the side. That's like my go-to lazy meal when I don't have time to cook. Um, so when I do my boys, I do rice, a fruit, and then a little piece of the salmon. My boys are still learning to like salmon. So that's just an exposure to them. But I have two familiar foods that I know they'll eat and I know that they're not afraid of. And then I introduce the one new food. Because if you come at them with a plate filled with food that they've never seen, they're just going to get really overwhelmed and really grumpy and really hangry. So just focusing on you're in it for the long haul. It's mm -hmm. that continual exposure to foods. And I think this is an Ellen Sater quote. I'm probably going to say it wrong, but the, um, what is it? Cater to your, no, don't cater to your children, but accommodate them. Right. So 
don't make four meals for every member of the family, um, but take into consideration their preferences and tweak the meals to fit what they like. Mm -hmm. And I love that because that to me is practical. I'm not going to be eating chicken nuggets and mac and cheese every night like my boys want to. I can still eat what I want Mm -hmm. and expose them to new foods. Yeah, I think that's great. And then by not by not accommodating, well, I, I should say by not keeping it so narrow where you're introducing an entire new meal and then just saying, well, if you're hungry, you're going to eat something, then mm-hmm. you're giving them the opportunity to make sure that they can fill up. They don't have to worry about leaving dinner, starving or eating something in their mind that's gross. Um, and and But it gives them the freedom to then try it if they if they want to and they knowing that if they don't like it, no big deal. They can just fill up on something else. And uh, exactly. Yeah. I know one of the things that my mom used to do to kind of help in that area with me, because we basically did the the division of responsibility growing up uh, without it being called that my mom didn't know that was just <laughs> how she did, did things. But, uh, but she would always have raw vegetables because I never really liked cooked vegetables until I was mm-hmm. an adult. So she would always have raw vegetables along with it. And so that was a way that she was able to accommodate my preferences without being a short order cook or mm-hmm. with spaghetti. Exactly. She would have, uh, I, at, at one point, I just preferred plain spaghetti sauce with no meat in it. And so she would cook up a small por- portion and that didn't have meat in it. And then the rest that would have meat. And then that way I could get the the part that I liked. And mm-hmm, what's exactly. funny is we, I think it's funny how it's parents. Sometimes we think that, that that's letting our kids control us or something, or that we're just catering to them or spoiling them. But at the same time, I'm thinking about, we have a game night at our house every month and we have one person who is gluten-free and one person who's allergic to beef. And and my wife likes to make lasagna and, and spaghetti or other kinds of things. So if we do burgers, then we always have turkey hot dogs and regular hot dogs. And mm-hmm. we always have turkey burgers. And uh, we also have a vegetarian in our friend group. So we have a vegetarian, uh, gl- someone who's gluten-free and somebody who's allergic to beef. And we accommodate them. We, we, and it's not a short order cook thing. We all eat the same thing, but we exactly. make some we make some adjustments to allow everyone to be able to enjoy it. And I think that it's funny how we're usually quick to accommodate adults, but then when it's kids, we just expect them to kind of fall in line. Exactly. And I think it's back to that lowering the expectation of like knowing that kids are, they're afraid of those new things and they have specific foods that they enjoy. So it's not quite going full like everything needs to be like a kid-friendly like dino shaped chicken nugget right um but still incorporating things that like pleases them while also feeding your family and that's one of the reasons why i love this approach is it still allows you to eat the foods that you enjoy without being a short order cook Mm -hmm. um introducing your your children to new foods and also having your kids eat the food because nothing's more frustrating than when you make a meal and your kids refuse to touch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, one that I want to bring up before we get to the last question I have for you is desserts. Cause I think that's a big one. What, how do you recommend approaching desserts with, uh, with kids? Do they need to finish their food first? What's your, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are, uh, if you're going to serve a dessert, if you know going into the meal, I'm going to do a dessert, I recommend serving it with the meal. Okay. Now that's not a perfect, like there's definitely times where like we'll have dinner and then it's like, oh man, I want a piece of chocolate. And my boys ask for a piece of chocolate. So it's not always a perfect thing, but I still give it to them because that one is a forbidden food for a lot of families. Really what happens with that is you're elevating that food above all the other foods and you're making it more desirable to your children. And ultimately they're going to be exposed to it, whether it's at a birthday party, at school, at a family function, like they're going to be around those foods. And that's when I see kids just inhaling fixed cookies at an event. And the parent is so embarrassed because they won't stop. It's because they're never getting those foods. So in our house, we routinely give our boys cookies with dinner. They Every Saturday morning, we go and get donuts. Um, and really, the key to that is just keeping it neutral about the food. 
and maintaining that neutrality as much as you can, um, which will ultimately just help them not become food obsessed with sweets. Yeah, I think that's great. And and it's funny because I, I know some parents are probably thinking, yeah, that wouldn't work with my kids, but it really does. It's amazing. It does. I mean, it may not work the first time. I mean, they may just fill their face with cookies and leave leave the yes. rest of their food. But as they begin to get more comfortable with it, then and it, it and it truly does become neutral. It's uh it's really cool to see it. You know, I see it with clients, but I have also seen it with my nephews and them leaving half their dessert on the plate at, and mm-hmm. in in favor of eating the whatever else there was on the plate. And it's it's really interesting when you see that play out. And I still remember one client sent me a picture of her three year old with a brownie in one hand and a broccoli spear in the other. And he apparently he was going back and forth. So he had broccoli on his face and he had chocolate too, but he was just going back and forth between the two of them. And she was just amazed at how, at how that actually played out and, and did, you know, work for lack of a better word. So. Yes. And I think that um, I've seen that with my boys and um, we here in Houston, we're huge common bond people like their baked goods are the best and they sell giant chocolate chip cookies. My boys love to go and get them. And the last time we went and did that, I noticed that both my boys left half their cookies like Mm -hmm. in like no comment, no question. They just set it down and they went and played and they were like good. And that to me is like the epitome of like that division of responsibility and raising those intuitive eaters, allowing them the freedom to have those foods but then their ability to stop when they're full. Like for me as a mom with feeding, that is like my end goal. If I can do that for my boys, I will feel like I will be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great, a great indicator of that, you know, that they are truly staying in tune with their body, that they're not mm-hmm. always polishing off whatever's put in front of them, regardless of what it is. Yes. And, well, the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on was, you know, I obviously have a lot of men who listen to the Men's Intuition podcast. <laughs> uh, what are some specific ways that you can think of that dads can help support their children in, in developing a healthy relationship with food as well as uh, body confidence? Yeah, um, I think that in a short answer, I would say modeling behavior as a parent. I think um, watching how you talk about your body, whether you have little girls or little boys, just watching that comment and that commentary that you say about your body. Um, but then also watching what you say about other people's bodies. And because ultimately kids will start putting together like, oh, they said something about that. Like, I look like that. Like, is there something wrong with you? So yeah. the more you comment on your own body, whether it's not directed at your kid, the more you comment on yourself and others, your kids will pick up on that. And then just modeling normal eating behavior you know men if you're the like full-time worker or you're the full-time um breadwinner still modeling that healthy eating behavior so not skipping meals eating consistently um and modeling that behavior and then also just being involved in the eating and the feeding habits of your kids so you know not pressuring them to eat being a part of the dinner table as best you can Mm -hmm. um, and being an integral piece of that i think would be some of the easiest ways that you could help and just form that healthy relationship with food for your kids yeah Boy, I think those are, I think those are great, uh, great tips. And, you know, one thing that comes to mind in, in talking about bodies that I also think is, is important is even when it's positive, it can be, it, even when it's, when we think of it in terms of, Hey, it's a positive compliment. Uh, I think that it, over time that can actually contribute to a lot of the body image related issues that we have, because if you, yes. you know, if we comment on somebody's muscles and say, Oh, uh, your muscles are so big. Or, or if our, if our spouse is commenting and saying, Oh, wow, you're, you've really put on some good size at the gym lately. And that's seen as a positive, you know, I, I've been trying to build muscle and they mm-hmm. recognize it. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But our kids see it and they're like, Oh, well, that's a good thing. But, but my muscles aren't growing. And of course they're a kid. Yeah. And, um, and it's really fascinating because a lot of kids, they look to adults as the ideal model of what their body should look like. Um, I was just going through some statistics recently about girls, nine-year-old girls wanting to look like grown women in the movies and stuff. And it's like, even if they had the genetics to do that, they're not going to for a long, long time. And yet yes. they're, they're already looking at their body in a way, comparing it to that. And, and boys do the same thing. 
you know, they're, they're comparing their body to grown men and that kind of a thing. And so I think that that's another important thing is it's not just the negative stuff. So we don't want to go from talking about, oh, I'm, I feel fat to, oh, wow, you look like you've trimmed down or you look like mm -hmm. you put on new muscle or, oh, wow, you're, you're so pretty or, you know, focusing on those kinds of things, I think. Yes, I agree. I think just, and that one, there's so many nuances to that, mm -hmm. but trying to just maintain that positivity about all bodies and yeah. teaching that there's different sizes and different types and cultivating that kind of environment is really powerful for kids. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to, to wrap up. So um, how can people connect with you? Uh, do you? Are you taking clients online? Do you work remotely? Um, obviously, you probably work in person, too, if if people are in the Houston area. Yeah, so I um, I am taking new clients. I love to work with families. If you are having feeding struggles, if any of this resonated with you, um, I coach and teach under that division of responsibility, but then just help really help you troubleshoot and honestly call out moments where you're like, hey, you weren't staying within your role. So I do take um, coaching clients. I also work with women um, who are wanting to maybe turn around their relationship with food. Um, and, and within that, I do think that can trickle down into your kids. And so mm -hmm. the intuitive eating for women and that division of responsibility, I think just really go hand in hand with a lot of my clients. So um, it, if you are interested in learning more about my services, I do have a website. It's just balancedmomnutrition.com. You can always follow me on Instagram. It's at balanced underscore mom underscore nutrition. Um, and you're welcome to reach out to me there. Um, and yeah, give me a follow. I like to always keep it really real on my Instagram page, show you what my day-to-day -day looks like, how I'm feeding my boys, how I'm feeding myself. So you guys should check out my page and follow me over there. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for joining me on here. This very important conversation. And, uh, and I think that uh, a, a lot of dads can really benefit from this and hopefully understand that it's not just uh, a woman's role to help with yes. the feeding of the kids. I don't care how old they are, how young they are. I mean, even when they if, when they're breastfeeding, you can still start incorporating some of these positive attitudes and mindsets around food and modeling it. Those kids are watching even when they're little, little tiny, um, little tiny suckers. They can, they're still modeling and watching everything that we're doing. So. Yes, absolutely. And I agree wholeheartedly. You can still be involved, help um, lay that foundation and be an integral part of it. And I love that you're encouraging and promoting that. 